Greetings, folks, and welcome to another episode of Lessons from the Cockpit. I am your host, Mark Hacera, and for over 24 years, I was an Air Force pilot flying the KC-135. Since I was five years old, my passion has been all things aviation. Special thanks to the book, Pardon My Quirks by Mo Barrett for sponsoring this episode of the show. On the Lessons from the Cockpit show, we debrief the most fascinating and intriguing pilots, aircrew members, maintainers, and aviation enthusiasts from all over the world by investigating the tactics, techniques, and procedures cultivated during those extreme and extraordinary military, commercial, and general aviation flights. Our exploration gives our listeners practical advice on how does the aviation world work and expands critical thinking skills and expertise both in the air and on the ground. Many of these stories are being told here for the very first time. On today's show, we're going to talk to the author of Pardon My Quirks, and she's going to tell us how you maintain centerline and how do you build toilets in a bare base environment because she opened some critical bases for the United States to operate out of during the war in Afghanistan. So, grab an adult beverage of your choice, sit down, strap in, and let's begin the Lessons from the Cockpit show. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on today and doing this. Oh, this is my pleasure. This is awesome. It's nice. It's been nice to kind of kind of go through the Rolodex in my brain of, of all the experiences. So thanks for the opportunity to kind of walk down memory lane or fly down memory path or whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I talk to everybody. I say, hey, come up with like three or four of your best. Yeah. And a lot of people go, oh, man, I'm going to have to think about that. Some of mine just come right to my head. And yeah, you know, some of mine I just think about. But your experience is so different because you started in a small airplane and went to a really big airplane. Yeah, it's okay. (laughs) And then you opened K2 of all places. Yeah. Let's just get right into it. Tell us, tell us one of your lessons learned and the story behind it. Okay, Mo? Yeah, you bet. Well, uh, kind of like you, I mean, you talked about getting fired and then the guy who fired you calling you up and needing you to uh, to, to run the AOC and, and, uh, and the yeah. operations there too. Um, I was actually in crew rest. So imagine just being in crew rest and I was going to fly against a KC-10, no offense to the 135, but gas passers are gas passers, right? <laughs> and uh, I'm in crew rest and I'm in California and it's like, I don't know, maybe like nine or 10 noon in the morning. My phone keeps ringing and ringing and ringing. I don't pick it up because I want to sleep in because this is my job tonight. I'm in night AR. People leave voicemails and they're like, hey, just checking in on you. Another voicemail. Hey, just making sure you're okay. Another voicemail. Hi, just checking in because there's all these crashes. And I'm like, what crashes? So I turn on the TV just in time to see the second plane hit the second tower. So this is September 11th, 2001. And at the time... I had had um, some heart issues, and so I was I was not like a full up round. I was kind of deniff, but I mean I could fly training missions. But I was assigned to the tanker airlift control element, which is basically airfield sustainment and airfield establishment. As soon as I saw what was going on, of course, then the phones are ringing because the flying squadron is trying to put me on alert on a crew, and the tanker airlift control element squadron is trying to get me to come in and as it was my primary squadron was the uh, tanker airlift control setting up airfields and so i had to tell the flying squadron i can't be on that crew and nine days later i was in turkey waiting to go in we went into karshikahanabad and well they call it k2 in uzbekistan we were like the first 100 there was i think there was 10 cia agents with us and then about a hundred of us in the tanker airlift control element that went in and set up that airfield but you know it's one of these things where i I always talk about one of my talks i know you've got like aviate navigate communicate one of my talks um, that you'll understand is fight for center line and i think we have all these different roles that we have in life I had two different roles for the Air Force. One was as a C-5 pilot and one was as a tanker airlift control element commander. And at that moment, I could have fought for any center line, but as it was, the Air Force said, no, you're gonna go set up an airfield. And at that point, all my flying stuff has to go I have to change runways and focus on the center line of being a tanker airlift control element. And I just think that I, the thing I remember about that is I, I could have gone in the cockpit or could have been on the ground. And it's just once the Air Force or once the decision is made, that's the center line you got to fight for. And I just think it's just committing to all the different roles that we play. And I, I will just never forget that more. And I think a lot of us will, will always remember where we were on September 11th, oh, yeah. 2001. Oh, yeah. yeah. 
but just being ready and just and, and just managing all the different roles that we have and, and being ready for to fight for the center line of the primary one that we're focused on. Oh man, that's great words. Fight for center line. That's awesome. Yep. So you get to K2 and what's it like when you get there? I don't know how many people on your podcast are going to talk about toilets, but I am. <laughs> so uh, no, this is um, great stuff though. Perfect, okay? right? Yeah. This so is, this is good stuff because this is behind the scenes stuff that nobody hears yep. about. And you and right. I talk on the phone about something else. Maybe you'll bring up later on, but let's talk about toilets. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. So when we landed, so we uh, waited in Turkey for a little bit because Iraq wasn't letting us come down and we just couldn't get through. And so we had to wait in Turkey for a little bit. And then we finally got the clearances and we land in Uzbekistan and it was four C-17s worth of us. And we are just a hundred man team and we bring in everything we need for three months. Basically, well, actually, I take that back. We bring everything we need for 30 days. Uh-huh. We ended up being there for three months, living off of those 30 days of materials. But I'm saying we bring our food, our water, we bring a shower, we bring tents, cots, all that stuff. When we got there, there was literally nothing. There was a runway that was paved and there was just dirt. No barracks, no toilet, no tents, no chow hall, no bathrooms, anything. You kind of do the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And, you know, after a long flight, yeah. people got to pee. And, of course, it's a lot easier for you boys because you have your nozzle. Um, yeah, the rest yeah. of us don't. The world's kind of our bathroom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're welcome. So, basically, what we did is we took one of our baggage pallets. And we had um, – and it's one of those things where this is just how we packed our stuff. And so, on one of the pallets, we had plywood on three sides. And we – Throw all our luggage in there and threw some plastic over top and you don't throw anything away it's it's hoarding to the max so we took the baggage pallet and we basically took two of the pieces of plywood and put like a just a two by four to hold it up and put the plastic over it and there was just like a pee trench and that was our toilet at the time i was a very modest young lady <laughs> but uh, that stuff goes right out the window really quickly and i can remember I was on the night shift and I was getting ready for my shift. And of course I had to go to the bathroom and I was in a tent with only men and me. I had to go to the bathroom. It was all the buddy system. And I'll never forget squatting over this pee trench, watching this guy who had his back to me and he had his night vision goggles on, his helmet, full battle rattle, M16. And I just remember staring at the back of him while I was peeing and his head was just on a swivel, keeping guard for me while I went to the bathroom. Like this is where we are people. (laughs) What I thought was really cool about this toilet and the ingenuity of our team and all the stuff that we had packed and using everything that we had packed is over time, we went from just two pieces of plywood and some plastic over top to a full-on functional box with a door that shut. Somebody even put some parachute cord to make a magazine rack and we had found a toilet lid and we, we basically had contractors dig three 12-foot holes. And we covered up two and we used one until it was full. Then we used the forklift to pick up the box with the magazine rack and everything, uncovered the second hole, covered up the first hole, and, and that's, that's, how we, uh, that's how we worked for, uh, for three months until the, base, the main base operating support came. But yeah. I love looking at the evolution of the toilet, and I think about how important it is that we as humans and in life, in our family life, work life, all those lives, evolve. It's gonna be rudimentary at first, and that's okay, for the love of God and for the love of toilets evolve, you know? (laughs) And see, nobody understands what it's like going into a situation like that. You have airplanes that are coming in there. What days later? Oh yeah. Hours later. Yeah. Hours later. Mm -hmm. You have to feed them. Toilets is obviously a big thing after you're flying for a long time. Turn the airplanes gas. How do you offload Mm -hmm. the, cargo. And that's something you had to plan for, wasn't it? It is. And the thing I liked about the tanker airlift control, and I think air crew in general, and I I would say the the military at large is the innovation and the ability to, yeah, this is what we planned for. And this is what we packed for. We're going to start using that hammer as a screwdriver, or we're going to have to alter the things that we brought for the new things. Because you can only plan. And I always say, be able to adapt. You know, you have to prepare but you have to be able to adapt even after you've prepared because what you prepared for may not be what you've given. And again, that's something that applies to life. You know, we think we're going into this situation, we pack this stuff, and then the weather changes or the route changes or the company change, doesn't yeah. matter, but you have to be able to adapt after you've prepared. As you're leading this group and you've got men, women, everything, what are some of your leadership lessons learned of being able to drive people and keep them motivated 
at really a bare base and a bare base that used to be owned by the Russians that may have cracks in the concrete of the runway that you had to go fix. I'm sure you've got a lesson learned from just leading a group like that. And what rank were you at the time? Major? I was a captain at the time. Captain. Yeah, I was I was uh, number two. We have a lieutenant colonel who was the the commander and I was the Uh second in command. And see, now you're thrust in this situation and you have to lead as soon as you hit the ground. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you've got some good stories about having to lead a group like this. Why don't you share some of that with us? Yeah, I think, again, I like to focus on more of the quirky aspects. And I think part of leadership is realizing that one size does not fit all. And I think a lot of times, you know, you and I grew up in a time when there was this pyramid and there were certain things you had to do and certain things you had to checklist off. Mm -hmm. I think leadership whether it's in the military or even in your family life or community life on a sports team, comes down to the really basic things of leading the person. Meaning people had birthdays. I made sure to find out when everybody's birthdays were and you still celebrate those things because those things still matter. Again, we had one more, one month worth of food and we realized we we're gonna be there for three months. We had to cut back to one MRE a day. Even then it was still important if you knew someone's birthday was coming up, that that is a special event, especially when you're in an austere situation. So we would save our, um, it was like the the hot cocoa and we would yeah. just basically mix it in just this brown sludge. And then we would take matches and put them in upside down with the lighted part up. And we would stick some matches in this thing and kind of like that, like you better blow this out quickly because these are your birthday candles. Taking care of the person and the human being, I think, goes a long way, especially when you're in the austere situations like that. And I'll be honest with you, it was that deployment, those three months was my worst deployment, but it was also my best deployment. And I think a lot of what makes things the best out of the worst is when you come together and you you take care of people and you celebrate promotions are still happening. Stuff back home is still happening. You have to address those. But if you take care of the person, the person's going to help take care of you and the mission. So I always go back to just taking care of that person and and figuring out what motivates them. Because I think a lot of times we just assume everybody wants a birthday celebrated or nobody wants a birthday celebrated because that's maybe how we feel. But it's learning how your individual team members are are motivated, kind of tailoring your your leadership and your relationship with them to that. Because we all want some kind of normalcy in our lives, even though we're deployed. Yeah, especially you know? these past couple of years. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially these past couple of years. My wife somehow got a Christmas tree to me in Saudi Arabia. Awesome. It was all these little spindly pieces of plastic that lit up. It was the only Christmas tree in the chaos. And everybody's wondering, how in the world did your wife get this thing to you. And she sent it to me in the Christmas tree box. Wow. And the Saudis let it through. Well, this is strange. Yeah. But you know what that did for normalcy (laughs) while we're sitting there watching bombs drop and all these different crazy things. I mean, it was amazing. All right. Of course, everybody's like going, how'd you guys get a tree in here? Where'd you guys get that tree? You know, (laughs) you take care of your people. Mm Mm-hmm. So many people have forgotten that, though. So many leaders have forgotten that. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. Unfortunately, very much so. Yeah. You flew one of the largest airplanes in the world, the C-5. Talk a little bit about that, what that airplane is, what it does, how much it carries, and and oh. maybe one of the two quirky missions you had to fly on a C-5 Galaxy. So yeah, the C-5 is actually the third largest uh, strategic airlift plane in the world. The the people who are currently on the news have two that are larger, but not by much. And sometimes we always joke that they're bigger, but they can't afford the gas to fly it. I mean, especially right now, nobody can afford gas to fly anywhere. So (laughs) right now- One of them is gone now. Did you know that? They destroyed it. Which one? The Russians destroyed the the Mira. Really? I didn't know that. Blew it up in a hangar. It had a drive-through, Mo? Yeah, yeah. There's pictures of it. You'll have to go look on the web. It's completely destroyed now. Wow. Burned I didn't see that. Out. It's burned completely wow. out. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You talk about the, you know, driving through. So we call it row, row, roll on, mm-hmm. roll off. And so the thing about the, the C5, the nose can come up and then the back can come down. So you have this wind tunnel. And I think, uh, yeah, there's all these statistics on what the C5 can carry, how many ping pong balls, how many tortillas. I mean, it's like millions and six Greyhound buses and eight bowling lanes. But to me, the coolest thing about the C5 is that the Wright Brothers first powered flight, like the length of it, 
could take place in the cargo compartment. When you look at the dimensions of the cargo compartment of the C-5, the Wright brothers' first powered flight could have taken place in that space. I didn't know that. But you think, isn't that so cool? And I would always think about that. I mean, there's a lot of things I would think about. I wasn't that bad of a pilot, but I would think (laughs) about all those things. But what an awesome responsibility to fly a plane around the world that could have contained the very first powered flight. And I just, I just always felt this, felt this sense of responsibility to aviation in some respects, because I felt like I was carrying the Wright brothers first flight when I flew it. But yeah, the C5. idea. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't think of that. I didn't know that. Yeah. I always thought that was the coolest thing. It was how long it wasn't, it wasn't very long. 12 seconds, 12 seconds. I don't know how many feet it was, but um, I just, I think about that all the time. And like, yeah, there's cool cargo floor. Yeah, it's like in the space of the cargo compartment, the, the Bright Brothers' first flight could have been. So, <laughs> oh, jeez. So, I just I think think about it all the time. But you flew them out of Travis. Mm-hmm. Yes. So you flew a lot of missions to the Pacific and everything. You know, I'm sure there's a couple of missions that stick out in your mind because I know your book is about quirky things. Okay, <laughs> maybe you can relate one of those to us. Absolutely. Um, so this story is actually in the book. We uh, There was a huge super typhoon in Guam, and I think in 1998. And so we were flying Federal Emergency Management Agency. So FEMA, we were flying their lead team in there. So we had their mission commander. We had generators and bottled water and light carts and blankets and all that, because the whole island was without power. So we flew into Hickam, and I had the leg into Hickam. So from California to, to Hawaii. And you know, you, I mean, you find these long legs and you find these long legs. And so you get a takeoff and nine hours later, you get a, a, a landing. So it's, there's a lot of waiting and you don't think about it a lot. And then it comes time for the landing. So, you know, all eyes are on you. I'll just cut to the chase and say, I parangued the landing. I mean, this <laughs> there's probably still tire marks at Hickam where I landed. But the typical C5 crew and the, any crew concept, you know, everybody's everybody's got to get their little jabs in. So the flight engineer's like, hey, co-pilot, how many landings do you want to log? One or two? And I think, you know, the, the load master in the back is asking if he can be cleared off so he can, you know, reset all the oxygen masks, implying that they had bounced down. I mean, everybody had a comment. Even Tower said something. They're like, you guys okay? I'm like, all right, we're good. You know, just lay off. So we spend the night and, you know, we all go to Duke's, we cook our own steaks, we get in the plane the next morning and we head over to Guam. So another long land, another long day. And we land. Have you flown into Guam, Anderson? I was stationed at Kadena, went there all the time. Oh, yeah. So remember how it had that bowl? Yeah. Yeah. So this bowl, so you really had to watch your power and and otherwise you kind of floated and there's that ocean on the other end, which that's never a good landing. And so we go and my aircraft commander's the one doing the landing. And he does, he's showing me, it's my first time to Guam and he's showing me the bowl and he's, and he does this beautiful landing, especially, it would have been beautiful on a flat surface. It was especially beautiful because of how difficult it is to land at Guam. So we're doing the download and I'm outside and I'm talking with the the FEMA uh, mission commander. We're standing there and we're just kind of making sure the download and it's just great to see all that. That's one thing I love about cargo is you, you're bringing hope and you're bringing just life back to people who are, um, everything's just been destroyed and turned upside down. So we're watching generators and light carts and bottle water and all this thing. And the mission commander's standing next to me and he goes, Hey, thanks for the ride. And I'm like, yeah, well, good luck on your mission here and everything. And he goes, um, he goes, Oh, by the way, nice landing today. And for a moment, I'm thinking, this is my chance. Cause my aircraft commander's not around. I can take credit for this beautiful landing. <laughs> But I, I, I was the bigger person. I said, um, well, thank you. But that was actually my aircraft commander. He was the one, uh, he did the landing today. And the FEMA guy, he nudges me. He's like, oh, was he trying to make up for yesterday? And I'm like, no, no, <laughs> that was me. And I'm like, I'm like, everybody had commented on my landing to include the packs. And I'm like, that's a bad landing. When the passenger the next day comments how bad your landing was. I'm like, no, no, that was me. Did we land or were we shot down? How many times have I heard that? You know, right. Yeah. But, you know, know, I think I think it was a neat opportunity because we have these moments in our life when we can kind of take credit for things that aren't ours or we can own up to things that are ours. I don't know. I, I think it's easier too. They always say, you know, don't lie because they don't have to keep track of what story you told. But, uh, uh, you know, thank God, A, my aircraft commander wasn't an earshot, but B, that I I did give him credit for the landing and accept blame for the, the thing the day before. So oh, no, um, I just, I always own. think about that, you know, and you have these opportunities. Here's an interesting question. 
which runway did you come into at Hickam? Did you fly the Saki arrival to that funky LDA approach? Do you remember? No, we uh, we were on like the reef runway, the the oh, main yeah. parallel, the one on the what the beautiful one, yeah. One of my worst landings was also at Hickam, coming the other oh, direction. Gosh. Oh, it's the Saki one arrival to uh-huh. that localizer directional aid where you had to make that honking thirty degree. Yep. Turn to line up with the runway over all the ships. Oh, um, right there in Pearl Harbor. Harbor. Yep. Silly me, you know, I'm sitting there flying and I'm like watching all the boats go by. And <laughs> I, lost, I lost kind of focus of what I was doing, you know, like you said, fight for center line. Yeah. Wasn't even thinking about it. All right. I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Look, <All right>. bright, <laughs> shiny object. <Wham! laughs> <You know, laughs> You know, the G meter goes to like 1.7, you know, the boom operator's going, hey, do they have a chiropractor here on base somewhere? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and uh, of course, yeah, everybody in the cockpit yeah. knows, hey, dummy, what were you thinking? Yeah. You know? Bottom rudder. Bottom rudder. Bottom rudder. <laughs> and of course, you know what? Everybody in the cockpit says, oh, yeah, we were looking at all the yachts, too. <laughs> Okay. Come in. I think that kind of goes back to, you know, maintain your focus. Yeah. All of yeah, us have sure. had bad landings. Those that haven't are going to at some point in time. Yep. But I still remember the hardest one I ever had. That was from a typhoon back coming back to Kadena. Two G's on the on the G meter. I dropped to the airplane in for about 30 feet. Yeah. Wow. Was it like a microburst or just loss of power or what? Yeah, it was a microburst crosswind. Jeez. It took all the lift out from underneath the airplane. But Man. You know, I tell people, you fly with your five senses and they look at me like, no, you don't. Yep. Oh, yeah, you do. Oh, really? Sense of smell? Yep. Uh, yeah, actually, you do. Yep. I felt all the wind going out. I felt the lift going out from under the airplane. I could feel it drop. You know, mm-hmm. You've been there. You know what it's like, okay? Yep. You know, it's like being in an elevator and you're like going, oh, <laughs> crap. Yeah. Yep. And I had the chief of tanker stand about in the jump seat. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Right. Of course. Of course. All right. We drop, we hit two G's on the G meter. Wow. But I could feel the bottom drop out. And I immediately put the power in, did all the go around procedures. All right. We bounced back up in the air, no airspeed, airplanes out of ideas. And yep. it finally caught. We went over the infield, over the top of the Navy ramp because we're getting wow. blown sideways. Okay. Wow. Crazy. And then the ground soft calls up and goes, like you said, are you guys okay? The tower calls up, are you guys okay? You know, and you're like going, yeah, I'll be fine. Do you, Actually, do, you ever fly as a, do you ever fly as a passenger like on commercial airlines and you can feel that sink coming in? You're just like, please add power, please add, nope. <laughs> just nope. slam yeah. in. Yeah, and, and, and you go up to the cockpit and you go, uh, okay, who did the landing? And a guy raises his hand and says, okay, are you former Air Force or Navy? Yeah, welcome right. aboard, Ensign. Yep. Yeah, welcome <laughs> aboard, Ensign. Exactly, exactly, okay. <laughs> and there's been several times we landed a lot firmer. Sure enough, the guy was a Navy guy, okay? That, oh. That's one guy did. And he goes, yeah, I used to, I was an F-18 guy, you know, so. Catch the hook, yeah. Catch the hook, yeah. I don't know if you've ever done that before. No, have you? You're like, oh. I've got 10 cats and traps on eight aircraft carriers. How? Tanker guys, they always need gas. Everybody needs gas. Yeah. During Desert Shield, I was also doing planning at Jetta as well as flying missions. Okay. One of our biggest receiver communities was the two Navy carriers that were in the ah. sea, the John F. Kennedy and the Saratoga. And so the deputy chief of the MPC says, hey, come out to the carrier with me for a night. And I said, sure. And so we took off from King Faisal Naval Air Station at Jeddah. Mm-hmm. And the ramp's down in the back. You're taxiing out. See the runway going by. But all the seats are facing backwards, and they never turn them around. They always keep huh. them facing backwards because they feel the trap is worse than the cat shot. Think about okay. that. Okay. Right. The deceleration is worse yeah, than the acceleration. Exactly. exactly. We're there overnight. We're doing all the planning, get everything done. We get on the cod strap in and the loadmaster is saying to us okay get ready get ready get ready and d right turns over and he says you're gonna really enjoy this <laughs> right. you go from zero to 160 and 307 feet about three and a half seconds three g's holy cow right. and they tell you hold your straps put your chin down like this 
but it's an instantaneous 3G. So you come out of the seat about a quarter of a half inch, even though mm -hmm. the straps are tight and everything like that. Wow. It's, it's this bang, one potato, two potato, three potato, bang, and you're in the air. That's literally That's how crazy. Again, I'm in the cod, which, which has the parts of airplanes that are broken, <laughs> mailbags, uh, yep. lettuce, all kinds of crazy things. First cat shot and my last cat shot were on the same aircraft carrier about 15 years apart. John F. Kennedy. Wow. Okay. How'd you do it 15 years later? What were you doing? I was chief of the air fueling control team for Anaconda. And ah, that's right. JF, the JFK was getting ready to go up into the Northern Arabian Gulf. Mm -hmm. And they wanted me to come out and say, okay, here's what's happening in Southern Watch. But what happens if we start Iraqi freedom? So this right. is 2002 in April. The cod breaks and I'm out there for five days on the aircraft carrier. I shot 3,000 pictures. I went through 60 rolls of film. Oh, awesome. Days, taking pictures of all this, Mo. And I'm watching 19-year-old kids launching airplanes. The average age mm -hmm. of the kids running around underneath the airplanes is 19 years old. They're slinging bombs. They're changing engines. They're doing all kinds of things. It was one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. If you're worried about where young kids are going, go watch an aircraft yep. carrier deck yep. for 30 minutes and you won't have any worries about where 19 year olds are going. All right. But that's where, you know, the air force comes in because we fly stuff to Singapore. I'm sure you've been to Singapore. And all I have not years. actually really No, but, I did a lot more. Got, you've been to places throughout the far East. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Travis where you're carrying stuff, you know, that the Navy probably picks up somewhere. Okay. Yeah. And we'll take all this stuff in there. But a lot of the stuff, they have contractors that go on shore and go buy 1,400 gallons of milk. Wow. That's crazy. Patties, and that's how they keep going. Wow. It's really weird. Really strange. Yeah. That's fascinating. So, it's, it's a whole other life, right? I mean, it's it, I had no idea that was all going on. Well, that's cool. Your life was all about logistics. And what do they say? Smart men, women study tactics. Brilliant men, women study logistics. It really is about logistics, okay? Yeah, yeah. On, That's on a good point. Your long flights, you've had to refuel. Yeah. And you take a lot of gas, okay? So what? Hey, so speaking of which, what's the longest flight you've been on in the one thirty-five, duration-wise? I was on a fifteen-hour training flight. It was about fourteen point seven. Training. Training. When I was going through Castle, yeah. Wow. Our, our flights were typically between nine and 12 hours. Wow. The largest offload I've had is 103,500 pounds into a B-52. Took us 22 wow. minutes. Wow. I was just we going to say, up, yeah, it's a long. We were hooked up for 22 minutes. And I'm sure you've had, I mean, what's the largest offload you had to take in a C-5? You know, I don't remember the, the amount of fuel we've taken on or the heaviest thing, but I remember doing an 18 and a half hour flight from Puerto Rico to Botswana with two air refuelings. And uh, we were carrying, we were doing presidential airlift stuff. So we had the limousines and we had the comm suite. So those things are heavy as anything. And, but yeah, 18 and a half hours. And I'm like, that's just not, I, mean, I was getting cabin fever. Cause I'm like, I could have slept two full, you know, FDA recommended nights of eight hours sleep and still have two and a half hours to go. Those two ARs. And I, again, just because we were so heavy and, and I love, I love what air refueling does. I love the concept of not having to, do a gear cycle, not have to do a landing and all the time. It's so efficient. I love it. But I, I honestly don't know if that's what the Wright brothers had in mind back when they first started this thing. Like, yeah. let's have two planes come into controlled contact with each other. <laughs> you know, it's But it's range, an amazing enabler. Range, payload, and endurance. It all fits yep. into those three. So you yep. just mentioned something, presidential support. Talk about that yep. for a moment, because a lot of people think, you know, President Biden just shows up somewhere. They don't realize... Oh. They don't realize how big those beastie limousines are. Talk about that. Yeah. Well, and like you talked, mission. yeah, like you talked about before, the whole logistics tale, all the stuff that happens behind the scenes. So, we were uh, president was going through um, the African continent, and so basically, what they've got like duplicate sets. The Secret Service has duplicate sets of the um, limousines and everything. The whole motorcade. Of course, they're bulletproof, and so I, I don't even know how thick the glass is, and I don't know how heavy the doors are, lead-lined, and everything else like that. So we would carry a couple of the 
part of the motorcade and we would carry it to the next location. So he'd be at one location with one set of stuff. We would carry it and preposition it for the next location. Then Air Force One would take him to the next location. The limousines and all the motorcade from that location would go to the next location. And so it was this, this constant leapfrogging. But yeah, it's not a small task. I mean, it's... Um, and the funny thing about presidential airlift missions is... We always say in the military, we always said it is, everything's waverable, right? You're supposed to be, your crew duty day is supposed to be 24 hours or 30 hours, but that's waverable if things are happening and you really, there's a there's an actual mission need. But when you're flying presidential support, there is no higher mission, maybe combat, but presidential support is like the highest level mission and everything's waverable, even if you don't ask for it. I remember we were, uh, we were in uh, Cape Town just because we needed gas and we actually parked in front of Air Force One. We, we literally blocked it off. And that was not normal because usually you don't want that optics wise, you know, this ugly strategic airlifter in front of the beautiful waxed uh, Air Force One. But there we were. And so we were getting gas and, and getting ready to go on. And the, the control element get on the radio and they said, hey, Reach, we just want to let you know that three engine takeoff is approved. And I'm like, okay, number one, need all four engines. Number two, we didn't ask for a waiver. And three, don't put us in that position. So basically what they were saying is, whatever you need to do, you are getting out of the way of Air Force One. Like, we got it, but don't approve something we didn't ask for. (laughs) That must have shocked you guys and gals when you heard, oh, three engines. Yeah, go ahead, do that. Does does anything shock us anymore? I mean, it's, you know. Well, that's true too. Yeah, you're just like, Come on. You know, it's, it's, I guess here, I'll look at the positive for you. It's nice to know that you have that option, even though you haven't requested it. And <laughs> should something happen, you've already been given approval. Maybe that's, maybe that's the lesson. <laughs> so you had secret service guys flying around with you. Did you have to go through any type of security clearance, extra security or whatever to fly the presidential banner missions? Or were you just as like long as you had. Yeah, I mean, as long as I think all of us had our top secret uh, specialized compartmentalized, you know, TSSCI, I think we all had that. And so I think you you needed the TSSCI to be on a, a presidential airlift crew, um, but everybody had the TSSCI. So. Now, as a C-5 pilot, you got involved in a lot of humanitarian operations, and you just mentioned mm-hmm. one at Guam, okay? Um, I don't think a lot of people, particularly in the civilian world, understand that we just don't go around killing people and breaking things all mm-hmm. the time, okay? Talk right. about some of these humanitarian missions you did. You talked about Guam, I'm sure there were others. Mm-hmm. If you could relate some of those stories, that would be really cool because those jobs were so satisfying. Right, okay? right. I think a, a lot of the satisfaction comes from, in the airlift world, in the tanker world, you know, we do a lot of training, but a lot of times the training that we do is on the heels of or on the back of an actual operational mission. So, for example, when I when I flew to Guam for the typhoon relief, I was still getting through upgrade and still, you know, obviously working on my landings at Hawaii. We were able to do operational missions while we were training versus you look at some of the bombers and the fighters. A lot of times they're just flying around the flagpole doing their training and their maneuvers, but there's not an actual operational mission that's yeah. being accomplished. And the one thing I loved about it is I think I probably did more humanitarian or functional missions than I did training. And a lot of times, again, carrying generators and carrying light carts and bringing power and water to people who don't have them, especially when you see the the disparity of all the stuff that we're carrying and how complex our machine is. And you're going to these rudimentary places in, in Africa. Kids are coming up to you and they all they wanted was, honestly, God, a mechanical pencil. And so when you knew you were going to these places really? and bringing these things, yeah, they wanted mechanical pencils. So we would stock up on mechanical pencils and maybe my translation was off, but they would ask and they, you know, because you had your yeah. pencil in your pocket oh, yeah, over here and they would, they would pull them up and they, they just loved that little clicky thing. And so the next time I flew to Africa and I knew it was going to one of those villages, I would grab a bunch of mechanical pencils and hand them out. It just It's just so funny to, to be able to go to a place and get get some perspective on, you know, the things that we complain about. Oh, my cable's out, right? And all these kids wanted was a pencil. And that made them, made them, they just made them so joyful to have a pencil and the human interaction and things like that. A lot of times doing the training missions or doing the humanitarian outreach type things, 
was way more important and I think more effective in the whole diplomacy arena when you talk about the instruments of power and just being able to go out there and show not just Americans, but to show other countries that the U.S. military was more than dropping bombs, more than doing those things, that the U.S. military is handing out pencils to um, to people who, you know, to young kids or soccer balls or jeans. I mean, just, you know, the weird things that we take for granted and we don't even think twice about because it. it's in our pocket and we just need that to fill out our 781s. You know, it's like uh, Gail Halverson, the candy bomber. What a difference he made for our aviation history for for everybody in the Berlin airlift, part of that, and, you know, Dr. What do they call him? Wiggly Wings? Uncle. Uncle Wiggly Wings. Uncle Winkleflugen. Was it Wiggle? Uncle Wiggleflugen. Uncle Wiggleflugen. Yeah. At the 60th anniversary, I talked about this. Some guy in his late 60s came up to him and says, hey, I'm one of the kids that had the candy bars. I got one of the candy bars. And he talked about something that you oh. just talked about. That mechanical yeah. pencil gave that kid hope. If you don't have hope, you don't have anything, okay? Yep, yep. And this kid, this older gentleman now said, I kept that candy bar under my pillow for three months. I didn't take a bite out of it. Wow. Because I was ready to end my life. Hmm. My, he was, I think he was an orphan and he was living in an orphanage. And he said that candy bar gave him hope. And isn't it amazing, Mo, that something as small as a mechanical pencil will have that kind of impact yep. on someone you meet? Yep. That you have no idea who they are. You see the kids along the fences. And I, and I remember seeing even in the tanker going into certain places, you know, there'd be people along the fence and everything. Mm -hmm. Something as small as a mechanical pencil makes all yeah. the difference in the world. Yeah. Well, what one of the things one of your talking points is, I'm going to mess it up. But it's doing being doing something significant um, for the people for people you yeah. interact. But but you know when you talk about um, Gail Halverson being the dean at BYU, and most people not knowing his story, and for us like we can't even fathom not knowing his yeah. story, right? So, yeah. but but it also is a bigger. It also reminds me that everybody we meet and everybody we walk past has a story. And it's important, and I think it's incumbent upon us, um, not only to share our story, and that's what I love about you, you know, preserving aircraft history and aviation history and, and, and all these stories that we've all lived through and probably have forgotten about, but to get a chance to talk about. But we need to ask people their questions. You know, we need to ask people to share their story because people have amazing lives, and, and so few of them get the opportunity and the platform and for someone to listen to them. And so I think it's important, too, that not only do we do something significant for other people, but ask about them, find out. We could be hanging out with the candy bomber and not know it and, and find out that Uncle Wiggleflugen or whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Uncle Wiggleflugen, I think. Wiggleflugen, thank you. Wiggleflugen, okay. You do these humanitarian missions and you really never find out what impact you had on people. Right, you know? right. And every once in a while you get lucky and you get to talk to somebody that said, you saved my life. Yeah. And here he was, 60 anniversary. And this guy comes up to him in his late 60s and go, I was about to end my life until you did something. Wow. And see, That's... You as, uh, and, and in your humanitarian missions, you know, you don't think of generators. You don't think of, you know, <laughs> I worked at the TACC. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the Philippines got wiped out by a hurricane, by a typhoon, mm. okay? We called it the trailer park of the Pacific. Every typhoon hit the Philippines for crying out loud. Yep, yep. We loaded a C-5 full of lumber and visqueen. And I'm like going, what the heck is all this for? Why are we, you know, pallets and pallets and pallets of uh, two-by-fours and rolls, rolls, of sheet plastic and I didn't know what it was for until I talked to one of the people over there that was part of a team like you were and they said we make temporary housing out of it we actually yep. have a frame that FEMA ha FEMA had a little plan to start nailing the cutting the two by fours nailing it together and stapling the visqueen to it to make temporary yep. housing and that stuff means everything 
Oh, exactly. Okay. Particularly when a place is wiped out that has right. no housing, no medicine, uh, no electricity, you know? So, I mean, just crazy yeah. stuff. Give us another one. Give us another lesson learned. Oh, another lesson learned. You know, the when I was flying the C-27, which is, is a twin-engine turboprop, and it was only 10 in the Air Force inventory, um, and it was based on a hub-and-spoke concept, right? Mm -hmm. So it was, and this is the C-27A. I know you had the J in your, your inventory. Yeah. Um, I but, found an A well, model, though, for you. Oh, you did? Ah, nice. I did. I did. So what we were supposed to do was we were supposed to fly to, we would fly down to Ecuador and we should have yeah. just stayed there. Then a C-5 or a bigger aircraft would bring stuff to Ecuador and then we would just kind of spoke it out like that. But as it was, we would leave Panama, fly with the stuff, fly to Ecuador and then spoke yeah. it out, spend the night, you know. So we didn't yeah. really use it like the hub and spoke the way it was intended, but we were taking the first U.S. aircraft ever to land in this little um, village called uh, Tena, Ecuador. One of the nice things about the C-27 was it's such a small plane. We could do these small field. I mean, nothing. I mean, I, I don't even remember our takeoff. It was, you know, less than a couple thousand feet. But we would always do, we always do two passes. The first pass was to clear the runway of any kind of animals or kids, or that's, that's how we announced our intentions. And then we'd come back around and land. And so we go to Tenet, Ecuador. We were told that we're going to be the first U.S. aircraft ever to land there. We do our first pass and we look in. It's like the village has shut down. And just like you mentioned earlier about kids just lying in the fence outside the perimeter, everybody's out there. So we land just flying over this corrugated tin roofs and there's no, nobody's on the runway, but everybody's lying in the road. They've closed down the schools and everything. Come back in, we land, we do a really impressive short field landing, throw the things in reverse, kick all this dirt up, make this spectacular thing, you know, partly because we needed to, partly because we wanted to. Yeah. So we start taxiing in. I'm sitting in the right seat. My aircraft commander's in the left seat. And we have the best dressed marshaller I've ever seen. He's like, no kidding, in like a three-piece suit. It's a little dirty, but he's very well dressed. Come to find out later, he's the mayor of this village. So he's marshalling us in. And as we get closer and closer, his eyes are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. We're like, I don't know if we're on fire. Something, he sees something wrong. And I'm like, oh, oh. So finally, he just stops us. We're in the... We, we are not in the right final parking spot, but he stops us. And so we shut down number one. I sit in the cockpit. Aircraft commander who speaks Spanish, he jumps out and he goes, he's got his arm around the, the marshaller and they're both pointing up at the cockpit. And I'm like, I don't know if we're on fire. I'm trying to remember where are the fire extinguishers? What's the word for fire? Fuego. Okay, got it. You know, <laughs> and then the next thing I see is my aircraft commander. He's laughing at him. He pats him on the shoulder and he comes just walking back up. And I'm like, what was the problem? He said, uh, this is the transaction that just happened, all in English. The marshaller, come to find out, is the mayor of Tena, Ecuador, said to my aircraft commander, Captain, your other pilot, it is a woman. <laughs> That's what he was freaked out about. They don't have women, certainly don't have them in the cockpit. Mm -hmm. um, m most women in, in aviation might, the stewardesses, right, of the day. Yeah. He was completely freaked out to find, and it's not like, what, what cracks me up the most about it is like, it's not like my aircraft commander didn't know that he was flying with a woman, but this guy was just so shocked he had to tell him that, did you know that sitting next to you is a woman pilot? You know, so. <laughs> but again, you again you talk about, um, you know, we were there to drop off cargo and pick up a couple pallets of things. In the bigger uh, historic part of it, this was the first time a U.S. aircraft had come to a, this little village. But even in the bigger aspect of it, which no one could have planned for, I just happened to be, it's not like I was chosen for that crew just because I was yeah. a girl. All of a sudden, this, what is a routine mission to pick up some cargo and drop off some cargo becomes this historic and kind of a life-changing experience for him in the sense that I showed him something that was possible, but again, we take for granted, right? It's the mechanical pencil or the Hershey's chocolate bar falling from the sky. Yeah, we've got female pilots. We've had them for quite a while, <laughs> but for them, this was a completely new concept. I, I guess he was impressed that we didn't crash, or I, I don't know, but it was just, I will never forget his eyes just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. He said, Captain, you're the pilot. It is a woman. I'm like, all right. Uh, you know, I just, I liked, I liked having those opportunities. Uh, certainly didn't plan for that one, but having yeah. those opportunities to, to, to show people a different perspective. Mo, the diplomat. And you didn't even know that. Huh. Yeah, not not a good one. <laughs> well, uh, not I hear not not an intentional one. <laughs> yeah, not an intentional one. Okay, and of course, when you go to Saudi Arabia, I remember going to Saudi Arabia in the eighties, and all of the restrictions that they had on women during that time period. Okay. Yep. 
the diplomatic right. uh, and and nobody thinks about that. But they think, okay, we're out flying. Them. Yeah. <laughs> but you could cause an international incident, whether good or bad. Yeah. And you didn't think about that. It wasn't anything yeah. in your briefing before you took off, was it? You didn't even think yeah. of that, did you? Nope. No. No. Nobody. Nobody in our crew did. You know. And it's it's you know it's funny what your eyes get open to. It. It. You just made me think of um. When I was in Uzbekistan back in 2001, I was the airfield airfield survey team commander. Um, mm-hmm. We just we had like 15 minutes notice. I picked a team. Five of us went and we sat on the floor of an MC-130. Literally sat in there, flew in the dark of night, went into Bagram Airfield, um, and we had to do the airfield survey to make sure that the runway could withstand C-17s and C-5s and other aircraft. So. We went in there working with 5th, well, I think it was Task Force da- Dagger, but the 10th yeah. Mountain Division and 5th, 5th yeah. Special Forces. And Colonel Mulholland was the, uh, retired as a three-star, but he was he was the commander of Task about, Force yeah. Dagger. And so we got down there, and uh, I'll never forget, the five of us are sitting there. It was me, and I had one other female, and then three three gentlemen, and that was our team. We had, you know, CE, we drill, fire yeah. team, all this other stuff. So we get down there, we get our briefing with Mulholland, and everybody's in civilian clothes. We're working with the Northern Alliance. We're about four or five clicks from Taliban hold. Mulholland sits the five of us down. He goes, uh, he just kind of gives us here. Here's this, here's where you're saying, this, that, and the other. And he goes, all right, um, I need to talk to your commander and your senior NCOIC. So the senior enlisted and the senior okay. officer. It happened to be me and the other female was my senior master sergeant. So the two of us get up and we walk with him. And he looks at us, I'll never forget, he looks at us, he goes, well, this is awkward. I'm like, what's going on, sir? He goes, well, I was going to tell your officer in charge and your senior NCO in charge that um, because you have two females on your team, to make sure that the two females on your team are not acting like they're in charge, making sure they're walking behind everybody and make sure they're not carrying a clipboard or the walkie-talkie. Can't help you, sir. I'm the commander and she is my senior NCOIC. I will be holding the clipboard. I'll keep my wits about me, um, but I'll be making the commands and the charge eater. So (laughs) you're just like, this is going to be awkward. But... uh, (laughs) You know, as it was, and we, we, you know, it's cool. We work with the Northern Alliance and zero problems. But what I always take away from that is we can be kind of on high alert for the way we appear to the outside world. But at the end of the day, I think all we, any of us want is someone who's professionally competent and personally competent. And so I always say, just be a good person and do your damn job. You know, and I think at the end of the day, that's really all it comes down to is personal and professional competence. And I will never forget that he had no problem. You know, I wasn't like flaunting it, like, look at me, I'm a girl with a clipboard and I'm in charge. But, you know, we all walked evenly um, and being aware of the cultural, the signals that you're sending um, with that without making an international incident. There's certainly some international awareness you can bring by just being good at your job and being a good person. And there's that, that blend of fitting in, not standing out, but also you have a job to do and you do the job and you're effective. And I think that that goes a, a much longer way than trying to make a stink and say, well, I, I am the one in charge, you know, so. You have flown into so many different cultures where you yeah. have to be kind of aware of that. Yeah. Uh, that kind of an issue, particularly when you're flying in the Middle East, you know. Sure. I'm a guy. I'm not going to get <laughs> bugged by all this stuff, okay? Yeah. But I'll never forget the colonel of the AWACS wing was flying the tanker. And they told us, do not let him drop off the boom because he would lose face in front of a woman. Wow. Guess what happened while we were fueling? The boom kicked him off. <laughs> the boomer. <laughs> Did he fall off? He fell off because as he was getting heavier, Mo, he didn't yep. put the thrust up, didn't put the yep. throttles up. Our boom operator became the strategic diplomat. What do you do? He's sitting there and he's watching. He's reaching the aft limit. He's reaching the aft limit. Oh, He's at the aft no. limit. And it fired through a disconnect. Okay. Oh. Auto, an auto disconnect. I mean, you know what it's like. You get the limit. Yeah. It's your job. The toggles release and off you go. Mm-hmm. So there was a major in the right seat as his IP and then him. And of course, he starts screaming. Right, what happened? What happened? What happened? The boom operator goes, sir, I don't know what the coil did. I don't know why it did it. It just popped you off. Okay. I don't know why. Wow. Let, me test, let me test the system real quick. And then I'll have you come up. And then he immediately went in over to Interphone and goes, was that strategic enough? And we all just started laughing and laughing. At wow. Good for him. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. The, the first thing the colonel at ELF-1 asked us when we got on the ground, did the colonel fall off the boom? That was the very first thing out of his mouth. Wow. Did the colonel fall off the boom? Mikey said, yes, he did. He got to the aft limit. The system punched him off. 
I wasn't going to hold him manually and, and mess up the boom. I let him yeah. punch off and I told him it was my fault. So he saved face. And the colonel goes, wow, good answer. Boom. Wow. And, good for him. Well, and you talk about, you know, being professional. I got your back. That was the other thing I was going to add. Yep. I don't care if you're animal, mineral or protist, female, male, as long as you have my back and are taking care of me and you do your job professionally, we're not going to have any problems. And the situation you're talking about where Mulholland's like, oh, this is awkward. <laughs> and you're kind of going, we're here to do a job. Yeah. And we're here to do it as quickly as we can, as professionally mm -hmm. as we can. Okay. Now, take everybody through what it, a airfield survey is like, that, particularly well, <laughs> at Bagram, because that yeah. place was messed up. Yeah. That, <clears throat> so... An airfield survey in the, the, the normal way is essentially you're you're looking at the dimensions. You're basically creating the 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 map for the for the runway in the airport environment, the runway environment. And you're kind of looking at, OK, you're you know, you're shooting angles and OK, well, how how close is that mountain? How steep is it? And so you have to that's how we figure out the, you know, like the Saki arrival and, and when you can, you know, what altitudes and what where you need to be. But the other the main thing we did really was we took a CE team and we drill into the runway and we test how much weight can it withstand. You know, so you just got to make sure that you're not going to have this heavy thing sinking on a surface that's not equipped to hold it. So again, looking at the the width of the runway, the length of the runway, and the the structural strength of the runway, and then also the parking areas, because once you get on the runway, you need to be able to get off the runway. So looking at those and kind of seeing how many planes could we fit in there. The the main purpose of an airfield survey team. Um, what made this one difficult was again, uh, we were in civilian clothes. We had a they gave us a four man fire team, and at one point we were out there. Oh, and we found all these um, unexploded ordinances. So that was oh, the other no. thing is we're just like. <laughs> Oh, so now we got to watch where we walk. Now I got to watch what we say. Now I got to watch who carries the clipboard. Again, it was just part of the job, and it was just yeah. okay. Now we got to take into this consideration. Um, but I remember we were we were on the apron, and we were kind of measuring out the apron, and there was a, a bombed out shelter uh, hangar right nearby us. And I don't know where this guy came from, but one of the fire team guys came from around the side, and he goes, um, "Do you guys want to take cover?" We're like, "Why?" He goes, uh, "Did you not hear the bullet just just skipped across the pavement right in between you guys?" You're like. Nope. He goes, come with me. We're like, okay. So, but yeah, so, but you know, it's just, you know, it's just, I don't know. It's just those things that are just, they're, they're great stories. And you're just, sometimes you, you hear them come out of your mouth. I'm like, wow, that's, that's a weird life I live. That was a weird job I had that day. Um, but we, we all, we don't we, tell mom. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Not till much later, but we, we were laying in this, we were staying in this, like this bombed out building. It was, we just, just were like in sleeping bags on the floor. I think the five of us all slept in the same room, but we had to burn all of our trash. We had this big dumpster. We would go out there and the Northern Alliance would do their shift change and this guy would come up on his bike. And I remember this one kid, he came up and he's this, I mean, really young kid. And he had his, his weapon. I don't know what he had, an AK or whatever he had. And we just stand there kind of warming up by the fire, throwing, I don't even know what kind of fumes are in my body right now because we're, you know, throwing, I mean, when I say everything, I'm saying everything, everything. Yeah. into the dumpster. And I remember yeah. the, um, I remember this kid came up, he was getting ready to go on shift. This is the only English he spoke. And he, he did like this. He goes, Taliban made this slicing motion across his neck, <laughs> takes his head off and throws it in the dumpster. Like that's, that's, that was his, um, his English. He goes, Taliban, and it throws it in the dumpster. In the dumpster. I'm like, oh, okay. No message received. Got it. We're, we got your back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, just fascinating stuff like that. So. Yeah. And, and see, these are the kinds of stories people don't hear about when you're deployed like this. Okay. Yeah. You know, a little yeah. kid going, yeah. Gonna throw these guys away. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I don't know what your thoughts were when we left Bagram. Not too recent, you know, just recently. Yeah. You know, I, I, I was I, heartbroken. I'll tell you what broke my heart as, as an aircraft commander, like watching, do you remember seeing that C-17 and the people just clinging on? And I'm thinking, Jen and I talked about, so Jen's a 135 yeah. tanker toad and, and she and I talked about it and her dad was a 141 C-5 guy. And we talk about this, like, what would you do? And honestly, I don't know the answer and I don't, I mean, it varies from day to day, but can you imagine having to take off knowing that there are all these people in your gear, we well, and, and all over the place? I mean, that's what broke my heart the most and just kind of sickened me because, you know, they've got a job to do. There's people on board that, you know, are supposed to be on there. But, man, I that just made me sick to my stomach to think about 
having to make that decision. Some of those people are pounding on the aircraft and you can hear it inside yeah. and you're like going, yeah, well, you look at your co-pilot, you look at each other and go, our job is to get out of here. And that's what we got to yep. do. Yeah. And you know what? I don't think a lot of people realize we have to make those kinds of decisions. Now the fighter guys, yeah. you know, they're, they're used to going, okay, well, these guys are bad guys. We're going to do this. All right. Yeah. But when it comes to people that really have understood freedom for a while and realize that it's leaving and they are willing to make that kind of a decision to hang mm -hmm. on an airplane and fly wherever it's going, yeah. not knowing what's going to happen. That's really something that's incredible. Yeah. So, well, and you think about too, and I think, you know, we, our country is not without its flaws. I'll give it that. But you think about you. people, people that are willing to do that, to clamor into our country and to clamor into um, literally hanging on for dear life to have a taste or a glimpse of what we have. And, and I'll be honest, I think we take advantage of it. I mean, uh, we, we take it for granted, you know, yes. what we have. Yeah. Um, and again, it goes back to the chocolate bar, mechanical pencil, but that the things that we get to complain about every day we yeah. have because we have the luxury of our community and our country that as imperfect as it is, people still want a piece of it. Exactly. You know, we're complaining about gas prices right now. I know. This guy was figuring out, I am willing to hang onto this airplane and go wherever it goes just so that yeah. I can be free, not knowing that that act is probably going to kill him. That's the crazy part. So you have now started speaking professionally. Yes. All right. Tell us about what you speak about. What's your, what's like your keynote speech? So Fight for Centerline is one of my keynote speeches. But mm -hmm. honestly, my whole goal in life is to make people laugh, learn, and think in that order. Mm -hmm. um, laughter has always been uh, just a key element of, of how I live my life and how I was raised. I think learning is important. I know education is important to you as well to, to not only educate yourself, but encourage others to be educated on something and also to take information from other people. So I, I, I laugh, learn, think that is what I'm about. And so it's really, I talk about the magic and the mundane. And I think every day we have opportunities to be better. And so Fight for Santa Line is one of my talks. Um, you will understand this one. Right. I have another talk called the Internal Combustion Engine of Action, but I mm -hmm. call it Suck, Squeeze, Bang, Blow. Uh, <laughs> so, so as you know, you know, the four parts of an internal combustion engine, yeah. you know, intake, oh, yeah. compression, combustion, and exhaust. Oh, yeah. I relate that to decision-making or to actions. And I think the biggest thing is, you know, the inputs that we take in is the research yeah. we do. The compression is kind of filtering it through past experiences yeah. or experiences of others or mentors. Combustion is the actual decision and the action. And the one part that's most often neglected is the blow, which is the exhaust, which is the feedback, which is all the things that we learn. And I know you did lessons learned and after actions reports or hot washes, whatever oh, yeah. we call them. Oh, yeah. And that's always an important part of capturing what you did. And I, this is when it gets a little bit irreverent, but the blow becomes part of the suck for the next squeeze bang in that what we learn from one experience or what somebody else learned from that experience should be part of our research and the inputs into the next round of decision-making. So it's like this iterative suck, squeeze, bang, blow, suck, squeeze, bang, blow. So that's my, my spiciest talk, I think. Oh, but. but that is so <laughs> important and some, mm -hmm. and something that people overlook, particularly like you're saying the feedback loop. When I left a major defense company, they didn't want to hear what I had to tell them. I said, by the way, this is dysfunctional. And I could tell by the voice. She wasn't even writing it down. Didn't care. Wow. Wow. How do we get better? How are we going to improve ourselves if we're not willing to take sometimes the stones, okay, with mm -hmm. the bread? God, that is so key. So how would someone hire you? Um, the best way is to email me. I, I, my email address is heymo, so H-E-Y-M-O. Mm -hmm 
at mulebarrett.com, or I always encourage people to go to mulebarrett.com slash about. My, uh, you, you'll get a feel for my irreverence. I, I've had to have a filter for the 26 years in the Air Force, but I always knew that the first thought that came to my head was not the first thing that should come out of my mouth. Uh, so my, my filter is employed a little less now, but I have the, the ability to rein it in. But yeah, mobarrett.com is, is the best way to find out about me and get a sense of my quirkiness. And that's, that's what I always say is I think everybody is weird in the most best possible way. And I think you have to leverage and not suppress the things that make you different because we all have a contribution to make, you know, whether it's dropping candy bars from the sky and thank God that reporter got hit by a candy bar because (laughs) otherwise we wouldn't know about Gail Halverson. And you just had a book published. I did called Pardon My Quirk. Yeah. So, Uh and again, it's the stories that I, you know, as a speaker, you understand this, right? They're like, oh, you have to have a book. So I'm like, oh, okay, I'll write this book. And it, it the publisher said, I need 40,000 words. So I'm like, okay, so I slave over the weekend. Right, 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 right. have note cards. I have all my points and all my stories compiled. Oh, I just bust my butt. And then I meet with a publisher and I'm like, okay. They're like, okay, so we need 40,000 words. I said, all right, how many do I got? They go, 6,000. <laughs> like, oh, oh, come no. on. So, yeah, so I went, right, 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 right. But yeah, you know what I found out is I really enjoyed the process of writing a book. It was... It, it's great now to be able to hold something in your hand, but it was it was actually a fun process. And much like like the opportunity you give me with this podcast is to go back and look with some depth and not just breadth of all the experiences we've got to have, but to look at the depth of what, and what was the takeaway from them and what was. And um, so basically what I did living, living true to laugh, learning and thinking is each story in my book. I think there's 43 stories real quick reads. But they have a question at the end that I want people to think about and just yes. something that kind of applies to the story yes. and like, hey, how does this apply to you? Um, because I don't think a lot of people take the time to do that. I, I always say too many people have outsourced their intellectual curiosity. Um, you know, like, how do I feel about this? Let me check Facebook. Let me check Google, you know, like, yeah, exactly. There you go. There you go. What is my opinion? I don't know. Yeah. Hang a magic eight yeah. ball. So as they hold up their phone and they're scrolling yeah. through Facebook and right and and everybody is on their device. Yeah. And nobody's yeah. talking. Okay. Nobody's yep. talking. Yep. So congratulations on your book and that Thank process. Thank you. And yeah. you know, it, it's interesting that you mentioned your process. All right. I can't type. I dictated oh. my entire book in Google. Perfect. Doc. Perfect. Dictated the whole book. Thank Did you heavens. use Grammarly? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Okay. That, that little floating G is all over my computer. Yeah. <laughs> and it's all over mine now too. And I didn't know it existed until my son talked to me. Yeah. My, my yep. son says to me, oh, dad, you got to get a hold of Grammarly.com. You got to download. I don't even know what that is, son. So yeah. it's a website, dad. It's a website. That saved my bacon because you know what? No. Mm-hmm. I am not going to waste brain cells on dangling participles. I got more important things to do. Okay. I flunked spelling in the sixth grade. (laughs) I would love to go back to my English teacher who told me you're the dumbest boy. You'll never be a pilot and go, not only was I a pilot, I wrote a book about it. People sometimes don't understand that creative process that you have to go through in order to accomplish something like that. Yep. Did you have any idea how you're going to write the book when you started? Exactly. But, but again, it's, it's embracing the process and it's, um, and I went through, I, you know, I tried some online, I tried a whiteboard, but then I was kind of mobile. So I, I, that didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I, I brute forced it cause I really wanted that to work for me cause I love dry erase markers. I love whiteboards that didn't work for me. So then I went to an iPad post-it notes yeah. on an iPad, yeah. but that didn't work for me cause I needed something tactile. And as, as techie as I am, I had to go back to note cards and I had the literal, they're, instead of index cards that are half index cards and I bought staples out of those things. And that's how I rearranged my book. That's how I write my speeches. That's how I map energy on, I have too many jokes here. So I lower them, but I love that part of the process. And I love the way you think it's going to go is never the way it goes, but it's about being open to that transition and not just kind of banging your head against the wall and you get that Pike syndrome of just, I'm going to do it this way, do it this way, you know, just be open to, and just kind of follow where it goes and enjoy the process. Hey, I have decreased your productivity long enough. <laughs> this this only increased it. Sluggo, thank you so much for the time. I mean, again, just, you know, I was going through my notes and just kind of going through all my different lessons and stuff. And 
it's it's a great opportunity just to kind of think through the lessons and the experiences. So I've, I'm very grateful for that opportunity and just to talk to you. And and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll let uh, we'll let Tom Capaletti know that we talked. Uh, I already did. And that. George Nolly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I talked to TC today and I, and uh, right. I texted him today. I said, I said, Mo and I are talking this afternoon. Yeah. And, and this is going to be great. Everybody always talks about you. Uh, the people that you've interviewed and the people that you've been around love you. Thank you. Love being with that. you. Thank you. Love your energy. Thank you. But every one of them mentioned your sense of humor. Uh-oh. Every single one of them. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I say that is a good thing. Thank you. And I to my that. audience, I would say, if you want a great keynote speaker that is really going to motivate you, but it's really going to be fun, Mo Barrett is the person for you guys. All right? Thanks, Sluggo. Thank you. You're very welcome. This is what makes this podcast so much fun, is having people like Mo on and listening to how you open a bear base and what do you do for toilets? Holy smokes. Again, special thanks to her book, Pardon My Quirks, for being the sponsor of this show. If you'd like to hire Mo to be a keynote speaker at your event, just go to her website, mobarrett.com, and you can schedule her to speak through her website. Wallpilot.com has a number of airlift airplanes that you can buy for the walls of your home office or hangar at wallpilot.com. Don't have a C5 drawn yet, but we're working on that. Please share this episode of Lessons from the Cockpit with your family and friends. Previous episodes can be found at my website, marcusera.com. Just go to the podcast pull-down box and they're all right there. And remember, subscribe. On next week's show, I'm going to introduce you to the air strategist for the surge in Iraq when we had a lot of IEDs and folks getting injured and killed. And he's going to talk about how they work together with other services and our coalition partner to overcome Al-Qaeda in Iraq. He's been a friend of mine for a very long time. We've known each other since the 90s. And Taz has got some great stories to tell. And he's also got a great sense of humor. So thanks for listening to our show today and look forward to talking to you next week.